Okay, uh, so like I mentioned, uh, this past week, I went back home to LA for a few days. And as I mentioned, it wasn't for the best of reasons. Um, one of our lead pastors, Pastor Eddie, from our family of churches, passed away uh, a few weeks ago uh, after a bout with cancer. And all the pastors in AMI uh, came in together to attend the service. Uh, but I got to LA the day before. And it was short. I boarded the plane here at like 6 a.m. I had to go through layover, so it took me 15 hours to get to L.A. Uh, But once I got there, it was such a great time to reconnect with my family, my friends, uh, some of my staff members that I used to work with at my old church, uh, who I haven't seen for about a year and a half. Um, I ate a lot, like I mentioned. Um, You know, parents, I haven't seen my, my, uh, my parents in like a year. But their love language is food. And so my mom had like a menu planned out for every meal I was there. Uh, So I had sashimi, I had tempura, crabs, I had homemade meals. That's why the three pounds, okay? Uh, But it was amazing. Uh, But during this trip, I actually had two very unexpected, powerful moments that I felt like were orchestrated by God. The first was at my favorite coffee shop of all time. It's called Alchemist, a place I used to go to almost every day uh, where I used to work on my sermons and meet with people. But on this particular morning, uh, I went there. I was super excited because I haven't had my favorite drink in so long. It's called New Orleans, okay? If you you guys go to LA with me, I'll I'll share it with you guys. But anyways, after getting my drink, uh, I sat down to work on my sermon. And even before really sitting down, I look up. And I see this girl who looks so familiar. And you know, you don't want to approach anyone if you're not sure, right? Because it could be awkward. So I make eye contact with her, and she's like, what the heck? And it was my youth group student that I helped disciple over 15 years ago. Someone I hadn't talked to in person for over seven years. I mean, we talked on Instagram, but not in person, and for so long. And what was interesting was that recently she was on my mind because on her Instagram, it felt like she wasn't doing well spiritually. And I felt a burden to reach out to her as soon as I could. And so the fact that she came to that exact coffee shop on that day in L.A. when she lives in Seattle didn't seem like a coincidence. You see, what you have to know about this girl was she was one of the most passionate Christ followers that I've ever known. She was a worship leader. She was full of compassion, someone after God's kingdom. She started a Christian club evangelizing to her classmates. But it really felt like that passion, that childlike faith that I knew so well had fizzled away. And as we sat down to catch up, I just felt the presence of God come into that coffee shop. And God, it doesn't happen often, but God started to give me all these words that I felt like he wanted me to speak into her life. Words I didn't feel like my own. And she was kind of shaken up in a good way because she too sensed that this meeting wasn't by accident. It just felt like God's presence was tangible in that short moment. Now, the second powerful moment was at Pastor Eddie's memorial service. Uh, It was a funeral, so it was sad, but it ended up being a reminder and challenge to all those present of what life was supposed to be about. Um, one of the hardest parts, but one of the most powerful moments was when his oldest daughter uh, gave the eulogy. And as you can imagine how uh, sad it was to hear her uh, talk. And as she was sharing about her relationship with her dad, she had a vulnerable moment where she confessed that there were times in her life where she might have resented the fact that her dad was a pastor. Because sometimes she felt like she was second place to the church. 
But as she looked out into the crowd, she literally saw a thousand people in attendance. People from all over who had been deeply impacted by her father. And she would say on that stage that looking out, it brought such healing to her heart to see that her dad lived for a greater purpose. And you know, one of the uh, ways that Pastor Eddie made the greatest impact was actually as a worship pastor. If you met him, you, you could mistaken him for like a hippie, but he was like super musical. Uh, he, uh, his main role was actually a worship leader before he planted the church. And one of the common themes when you would talk to people about him, it was that what they would say about him was that God used him to usher people into the very presence and heart of God that they learn how to be in God's presence and worship under Pastor Eddie's leadership. And you can tell that for people, it left an indelible mark on their spiritual life. No one said anything about his sermons, but they were, I mean, they were good, but they didn't say anything about his sermons or a meeting that they had, but it was God's presence that they remember so tangibly when they were being ministered by Pastor Eddie. And I bring up these two moments because it was a reminder to me and a confirmation that what's most important for the church and ministry isn't necessarily the words that we say or the programs that we have or my skills or your abilities or giftings. Those are great. But we would be mistaken to think that that is what we're primarily pursuing. You see, in both of these instances, it was about what? It was about presence. It was a reminder to me that it's God's presence that brings healing that impacts people, that brings God glory, that pushes forth the mission of God. You know, I sat there in the memorial service, and the one thought that kept running to my mind was, man, what a life well lived. What a legacy. I mean, he was only 57. He went home way too soon. But what a reminder of what a life that pursues, invites, and hosts the presence of God looks like. And what goodness it brings to those that were in contact with such people. Here was a man who was all about God's presence. That's what he was after. And you know, you might think that's a given, given that he's a pastor. But there's a lot of pastors who are all about their ministry. Or who are all about pointing to their own sermons. Or trying to make their churches bigger. But one thing you'll see about Pastor Eddie, if you ever met him, was that he was always pointing beyond himself to the very presence of God. And I think, there's a, I think that's the reason why you had a thousand people flying all over because they were deeply impacted by that type of ministry. You see, here's the thing. One of sin's greatest weapons is to create a heart in all of us that perpetually makes things about ourselves. Even good things, like our relationship with God or our relationship with the church. There's this gravitational pull to make this Christian life and the church about us. And we end up settling for a spiritual life that has the facade of a God-centeredness, but in reality, it's all about us. And that's the last thing I want for you and for this church, to settle for a Christianity that's centered around you and I. You know, recently, um, I've been reading a book by Michael Miller, uh, I actually saw him. He, there was a, this, I went to my first, first French Christian conference. Half the time I was like lost. But uh, Michael Miller was there, who is the pastor of Upper Room Church in Dallas, Texas. You guys know a lot of their songs. Where he tells a story of his church's beginnings. And one of the things that stuck out to me in the first chapter and really shifted a lot of my paradigms about ministry 
was that when he first planted the church, he felt the Lord strongly tell him, don't advertise. Don't even invite people to the church. Just start a daily prayer meeting in the morning and noon and evening where you'll be spending time with me. And he was so confused. Because if you read any church planting manual, that is literally the opposite of what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to invite as many people as you can, send out mailers to people, go out on the streets. But he clearly heard the Lord say that at the beginning of this journey, he wanted to teach him a valuable lesson. That God didn't send them to plant this church primarily to minister to people, to himself, or to the city. But that God sent him to plant the upper room church to primarily minister to God, to worship him, to be a people who are radically centered around God's presence. God wanted the very foundation of that church to be centered around the presence of God. And as I was reading that, it spoke deeply to a lot of what God has been saying to me as I've been praying about a life church and where we want to go in 2024. And so the theme of 2024 is the word pursue, as you guys can see on this, um, pursuing the presence of God. And this year, we're going to learn why that should be the center of our walk with God, how we might grow in this area, and learning about the God that we're pursuing. And so throughout this year, we're going to have sermon series that hit on this topic, interspersed between other sermon series. But this, this will be the focus in our discipleship, abide prayer meetings, Sundays, spiritual practices that we'll learn together. How do we build a spirituality that's centered on the presence of God? Now, um, today, we're going to begin by laying a crucial foundation for the idea of God's presence. So um, if you're tired, sorry, but today is going to be a little bit more lecturish because I have to build a theological framework, okay? And this is necessary because whenever we talk about the presence of God, uh, it's often just determined by how we feel or like what we assume about how God's presence works. And when you're not biblically rooted, especially in this topic, it's very easy to step into the realm of speculation and emotionalism and doing what we think feels right. And that leads actually to a lot of spiritual abuse that I see often in churches that talk about the presence of God without being within the bounds of Scripture. And so we are going to walk through Scripture today and anchor ourselves in God's Word. Okay, so if you're taking notes, I highly recommend taking notes. Uh, that'll keep you awake. But also, uh, this is going to be something that you'll have to remember throughout this year. Okay, so we'll dive right in with a theological question. What is the desire of God that drives him? You know, if you look at what makes a story good, is that timeless stories don't only narrate a sequence of events, but it does an amazing job of revealing the desire and inner life of the main character. You get to know what the main protagonist is all about. And if this is the case, if you've ever read through scripture, how would you answer the question about God's desire? when you're reading through the story of the Bible? What is he after? I think a good reading of scripture and its story would yield the answer that God desires and is bent on being present with his people. That that is what his heart is all about. You'll quickly see that he's not the God of the deists, a God that creates the world, steps back at a distance and just looks, uh, looks over it, but he's a God that passionately wants to give us his presence. He wants to dwell with us, 
And this is one of the main narrative threads of the biblical story. And so we're going to walk through scripture and some key points that are going to hopefully convince you and also give you a bigger vision of what it means to pursue after God's presence. As always, we start in Genesis 1 and 2. Can you guys see the words or is it not working, the PowerPoint? No? Okay. 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 We'll we'll make it work somehow, okay? Um, So Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, As modern-day readers, uh, and as familiar as we are with the story, I would say that we often miss uh, what's exactly happening in these two chapters that detail the creation story. I think for many of us, all we see when we read this is the creation of the world. But there's actually something much more specific happening, especially as it pertains to the Garden of Eden. As God is building this beautiful place within the earth where he places Adam and Eve, God is not only creating a generic world, but more specifically, he's building a temple, a place for him to dwell in, for his presence, as it says in Genesis 3.8, to walk in the cool of the day with his people. Okay, Uh, Listen to what one of my favorite scholars, J.R. Middleton, says about this. I'm going to read it slowly because I know we don't have the PowerPoint. Suppose we press the question, what sort of building is God making in Genesis 1? Although not immediately obvious, the unequivocal answer given from the perspective of the rest of the Old Testament is this. God is building a temple. The notion of the cosmos as a temple has its roots in the ancient Near Eastern worldview in which temples were commonly understood as the royal palaces of the gods in which they dwelled and formed their reign. And this is, this is important because we're beginning to see a glimpse of what's central to God's heart. Because the purpose of a temple is for God's presence to dwell in. And if that's the case, and the world itself was supposed to be his temple, it reveals that the purpose of creation in many ways was originally designed to fulfill God's desire to be present with his creation, to dwell with us. He created a place of rest, right? Um, this isn't my notes, but kind of came up in my mind. But when we had the Sabbath series. I talked about how God rested on the seventh day. And one of the main points I was making was that God rested not because he was tired, but because he was enjoying uh, his, his creative work. But not only that, I think he was building his temple for the first six days. And once his place of resting was done, he rested within the very temple that he built for himself. So from the very beginning of time, he was looking for a place to rest in. It was relational in design. Now, you might be asking the question, how do we know that the Garden of Eden was a temple? It doesn't seem like one. It's not a temple that we read about throughout Scripture. Now, I could give you some clues within the text itself, but there's a better way to know this for sure. And I'm going to give you this answer in sort of a roundabout manner. After creation of the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve enjoyed the very purpose of creation, which was intimacy and enjoyment of God's presence, only a few chapters later, they sin. And what was the most profound consequence of sin? Do you guys know? I, I think I heard it. Separation from God's presence. They were exiled from the Garden of Eden. Our relationship with the Creator was broken by sin. And in some ways, from Genesis chapter 3, the rest of the biblical story is about God's pursuit to reconcile us back to him. He wants to give us his presence back. This is why Paul says in Colossians 1, 19 to 20, when speaking about what Christ accomplished, he says this, 
For in him, Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Genesis 3 on, reconciliation was the goal. And you see the beginnings of how God's going to remedy this. Uh, when God leads Israel out of slavery from Egypt and calls them to build a tabernacle. And then later on through Solomon, a temple. And here's where we get to one of the main things you have to see. If you study, this is going to get a little nerdy, but uh, if you study scripture and you study the temple and the garden, they actually mirror one another. Okay? In the garden, you have the tree of life. And within the temple, you have, I wish, I wish I could show you the picture, but you have the menorah which is shaped like a tree. Do you guys know what menorah is? It's like that lamp that looks like this, and it has like the little branch thingies, right? Okay, okay. It has shaped like a tree. You also have the entrance of the Garden of Eden on the east side of the garden. The entrance into the temple is through the east gate of the temple. Uh, gold and onyx and precious metals are mentioned throughout the Genesis creation narrative. Gold, onyx, and precious metals are the materials that the temple is built on. Uh, later on, oh, and inside the temple, it's decorated with all sorts of carvings and paintings of trees and gardens, okay? Later on, when Ezekiel has a vision of the final temple, there is a river that's flowing out of that temple, just like the garden where the river flows out from the Garden of Eden. And finally, when Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden, God sets up a cherubim, which is a spiritual being, to guard from anyone to get in. In the temple, in the, over the Ark of the Covenant, you have a cherubim figure that guards over the Ark of the Covenant. And so it's not surprising to find that in the tabernacle, so uh, what I want you to see is that in, in the Old Testament, it was believed that the Garden of Eden was a temple where God dwelt. And the tabernacle and the temple in Jerusalem was supposed to function in the same way that the garden was supposed to, housing the presence of God. And here, what I want you to see is just how relentless God's desire to be with us was. Because in response to sin, that which separates us from him, he doesn't just relinquish that first desire, but it actually remains intact. And the temple and the sacrificial system is God's way of dwelling with sinful people. It's a, it created a way for Israel to be near him in spite of their sins. Stay with me. Okay, we're going to keep going. We see this even in a stronger way in the New Testament. Uh, Christmas wasn't too long ago, but the Christmas story, if you could distill it down to its main point, is really about this topic. What is Jesus' name that's talked about in Matthew 1.23? It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, even after the presence of God leaves in the book of Ezekiel, he comes back to us through Christ in the flesh. And after his death, resurrection, and ascension, when he goes up to heaven, where it seems like he's leaving the disciples, it's not long after that God's very own spirit descends upon the disciples in the upper room and rests upon them. And do you know how the later New Testament writers interpret that moment? Look at what 1 Peter 2.5 says. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. What's a spiritual house? It's a temple. Meaning that through Christ, 
No longer does the presence of God dwell in a temple built with stones and gold, but it rests in a temple built on you guys as believers. You are the living stones that make up the temple of God and where his presence rests. One last part. Now, as with every story, you have to look at the end because that's going to reveal to you what the entire, you know, I don't know how many pages your Bible is, but 2,000 pages is heading towards. And so let's read our passage for today. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So this is the end of the story. And as the climactic moment of history is happening, John, who is given this vision, sees the new heavens coming down to earth. And the entire earth and the cosmos is being renewed. And for our purposes, I want you to see this one thing. What does God declare in that moment? He says, this is going to be where I dwell with my people forever. As if everything he did in history was leading up to this moment. You know, uh, in the book of Ezekiel, the very last verse of that book is so cool. Because he talks about this, this moment, the end time temple. Do you know what the name of this city is? It's Yahweh Shema. It means the Lord is there. That is the name of the final city that we're going to be dwelling in. And what's so different about that end time is that every threat that can separate us from the very presence of God has been dealt with. That's why it says, that enigmatic statement, the sea was no more. I've said this before, but within the Jewish worldview, the seas represent everything that opposes God and opposes you. But in the new city, the sea is no more, meaning there is nothing that will ever separate you from the very presence of God in the new city of Jerusalem. Church, I could have gone for another two hours on this, but the point I'm trying to drive as deep as I can is, do you see God's heart? from Genesis to Revelation. He wants to be with you. That is the ultimate aim and of the cosmic story that we're in. He wants to dwell in our midst. He does not allow anything to get in the way of being present with his people. Church, I'm almost done here, short sermon today, but this is why it's so important for us. I need you to see the character of God. You know, as much as this year is going to be about pursuing God, the first thing you have to know is that he's actually pursuing us. In our pursuit of God's presence, it's not so much about trying to catch this elusive being who's very hesitant to be with us, who wants you to perform and earn, and then maybe he'll come and rest in this place. But we are talking about somebody in light of scripture that we see that God is pursuing us more than we are pursuing him. And it's about awakening a sense of awareness of God's presence that's already in our midst. 
about being able to see the God who desires to dwell with us. You see, when we don't feel or see or encounter God's presence, much the reason isn't because God isn't here. It's the fact that we're not aware. We're not open. We're not hungry. We're not seeking that. We don't have the faith to see. We can't see that which is right in front of us. You guys know that story um, in 2 Kings where the prophet Elisha and his servant, they're, they're, um, they're hanging out and then they wake up and then they see the Syrian army surrounding them. And the servant is like freaking out. He's like, what in the world? It's just, it's just us two. How are we going to battle them? And Elisha, being the man of faith that he is, he's not afraid. And he asks, he prays what? He says this, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You see, the servant could not see the spiritual realm, the army of God that was already present with them. Only when Elisha prays for him does he see the spiritual reality before him. And I think that's an apt story of what we're going after this year. God, open our eyes to your presence. Open our hearts, our minds, our bodies to encounter your tangible presence. Um, so I was in LA and then I came back and I was trying to finish the sermon and I honestly didn't know how. So I said, God, you better tell me what to say at the end. Um, and you know, I find myself, I don't know, as I get older, repeating myself a lot, but I think this year, the reason why I was going to choose like the word dwell or like, um, resting in God or something like that, but that just sounded too passive for me. So that's why I chose the word pursue. And for me, what that kind of entails is not settling for anything else besides God's presence. Don't settle. Don't settle for just nice emotions on a Sunday when you sing a song. Or even going through EG, yeah, you're going to learn a lot, but if you're not encountering God's presence, it's really for nothing. That has to be the one thing that you are going after this year. And and I'm going to say this. I guess this is a disclaimer for the rest of the year. It's going to be a little bit hard, right? Because it's going to require you to go after something that's not as tangible. That's going to take time. It's going to require you to be still, to step away from distraction, and to hone in on the thing that's going to actually fulfill you to the greatest degree. And so this year, I want to invite you. Man, God's presence is here. He is present with us, and he wants you. He wants your heart. He wants to spend time with you. He's not satisfied just with you singing a few songs. He wants your heart. He wants intimacy. And this doesn't mean you have to perform or do a lot of religious stuff. It just means you have to seek it and hunger for it. And that's the invitation that I want to give to you today. Okay, let's pray. Why don't we stand?